it's either third or fourth grade that I can clearly remember a day where I came home from school and I I opened my parents' medicine cabinet while they were gone and I just took like everything that was in there and then went outside to play basketball and I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna be dead and I'm gonna be free of this. Welcome to the Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I am very excited tonight on the line. We have Brock Wilbur. Brock is a political reporter and a stand-up comedian with three stand-up albums on iTunes. Brock, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Brock, I've got to say you are not the first comedian that I have heard of with a history of depression. Oh, no. What I is... thought I was going to be an individual in this case. <laughs> what, but, uh... what is with comedians and depression? Uh, who would have known that uh, people that uh, go up on stage for no money and uh, reveal all their darkest secrets would uh, seek uh, external validation? It's so strange. It's do, so strange. <laughs> do you think, uh, is it a chicken and egg thing? Is it the the lifestyle of a comedian? And as you say, not making much money and trying to do what you love and uh, that exacerbates depression? Or is it people, men who have depression that end up going into the comedy field, which is ironic in itself, right? I mean, uh, it's it's less depression and it's more of a of a personality type, I think, because it's not like men that are it, it, it's not like the guys that just go to do an office job are depressed in a different way. Like everyone's everyone's sad. Like that's not going to uh, be different. But I, I think that the the men that wind up in in stand up comedy and you know all, all genders there um, would uh, would be the sort of people that uh, it. Some people do it as a replacement for uh, for paying for therapy, and those people are just awful at their at their jobs. No one thinks that's funny, uh, but there are people that uh, find a sort of poetic justice or an irony or or or, or a way of, of working through depression uh, that, in your own head, is very funny. Uh, and sometimes, if if that is your coping mechanism, you realize that that coping mechanism is something that other people might identify with, or um, at the very least, be like, wow, uh, look at that uh, lunatic, uh, which uh, maybe that helps. Maybe it doesn't. <laughs> right, right. And is depression something that you talk about while you're on stage? Uh, it is. I, I used to do a lot more of it. Uh, and then I realized that um, a lot of what I'm trying to do in, in my work uh, in basically everything that I do is to normalize depression, especially in men, and encourage the idea that not just within uh, depression, uh, that, uh, that all forms of like emotional, uh, output, uh, are things that, that should be 
okay and that it doesn't take away from any form of masculinity and that you know the more that you bottle up inside the better chance is that you're gonna fall apart so i i try to bring that to my comedy and it used to be that i would talk directly about the depression itself and on the the last track on my first uh stand-up album was basically a 10-minute retelling of of my first like major suicide attempt and uh while that was uh a release for me it and and people have said that it's helped them with stuff. It still isn't the funniest comedy bit. And so it goes from one of those things that you figure out how to talk about depression on the surface. And the better you get at comedy, the better you get at talking about depression through other means, through metaphor, through allegory, uh, in a way that everyone still understands what you're talking about and where it is coming from, but that you don't have to introduce everyone through two minutes of basically, you know, uh, your psychiatrist explaining things to you to get to where the jokes start. Uh, right. So that, yeah, I guess that's my approach. I, I love talking about it. It is a huge part of who I am and, and mental health uh, and, and normalizing that is, is a, is a big gosh darn deal. Uh, but uh, it turns out that if everyone is already depressed, sometimes the last thing that anyone wants to hear about is your depression too, because it's just boring at this point. It's, it is sort of boring to hear, when you're like, well, I guess everyone's sad, uh, especially in the last couple of years where it seems like every day is a different uh, shit storm. Uh, so. yeah. there, you know, I do like to highlight, though, that the, there's a big difference between people being sad and people being clinically depressed. And those that are clinically depressed are definitely skyrocketing as well. Oh, absolutely. Like uh, the, I, I've spoken to my therapist and several of my friends have done the same with their therapists and, and starting post 2016, it's the wait list to just get started with therapists, especially in, in, in smaller markets. It's just, uh, you're waiting five, six months, which is just an awful situation because everyone should a have access to mental health care in this country. But, uh, yeah, if you're finding it impossible to get out of bed in the morning, the idea of also having to wait eight months until you can talk to somebody about it is, uh, God, we're backwards as a society. Oh my God, it's ridiculous, right? And yeah, and I know a lot of people make physical comparisons, but could you imagine if you, I don't know, you just uh, busted your leg, and they're like, "Yeah, we'll get you in in six months. You probably need surgery, but we'll see you then." Or something even more serious. You know, I'm having serious chest pains and can barely breathe. Well, we'll get you in in a few months. We'll see. You know, we'll do what we can. Hopefully, six or seven months. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so I know I mean, it is also the thing where like a, a, I've, I've just run up against it where I, I, I'm, I'm in a market where I, I thought that there would be, you know, a pretty good ratio of, of psychiatrists available to patients. Uh, my psychiatrist decided that she was going to move to Texas and she gave us and all of her, all of her patients a solid six months heads up. <laughs> just like, wow. you know, you've got time, you can start looking uh, and I wound up with um, uh, a month long, the, the earliest I could get into anyone uh, in, in my giant metropolitan area uh, was seven months. So I spent the month of December uh, through the holidays, a notoriously tough time for everyone, uh, between uh, meds and just couldn't get them. And I was like, this is what, what kind of world are we living in? Like, it's the first time I've had to be off stuff in five or six years and of course you go through both withdrawal but have to like really like ramp back up into uh some of some of the you know antidepressant stuff and i was like you know I, I, it's 
I, I had all the warning in the world and there was still nothing to be done about it. And that's, uh, it's just horrifying to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It is. It truly is horrifying. I know you it's did- really good to be there on like Christmas Eve and just start like crying uncontrollably next to the Christmas tree in front of your <laughs> friends and family. And just like, yeah, no, Brock, the, you know what? He warned us. Uh, and that, that, that's just a chemical thing that's going to happen. I was like, I'm fine guys. I, I don't even, I don't even know why I'm crying. It's fine. I just, I just love this fucking Christmas tree so much. <laughs> oh my God. It sounds miserable. Yeah. That, uh, that's incredible to think about. And, and I'm sure you're just one of many who have dealt with that similar situation. I know you describe your depression as pretty much a lifelong, situation of depression and suicide attempts as well looking back uh when would you say in hindsight that you first had any kind of symptoms of depression uh i think i I, it's either third or fourth grade that i can clearly remember a day where i came home from school uh and i felt that it had been building for months and i i opened my parents' medicine cabinet while they were gone. And I just took like everything that was in there and then went outside to play basketball. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to be dead and I'm going to be free of this. And instead I just wound up, uh, vomiting all over the basketball court, uh, and then just lay, lay in the grass for a while. And by the time my parents got home, I was just sort of fine again. I was like, you know, they didn't have anything in there of any value. Like it was a, bunch of Tyler. I think I definitely had like Pepto-Bismol. I was just plowing through things and I was like, I'm going to get out of this. So that's the thing that, that remained buried in my head for, for years. And then when you recover the memory, I'm like, Oh, you know, there's always been a thing inside of me that, uh, that maybe wants to get off this ride. Wow. Uh, so, so that that was third or fourth grade, you said. Yeah. A- and it was clearly a conscious decision you made of, I don't want to deal with this pain anymore and this will end it. Yes. Wow. And then did your folks find out about the missing medicines? I mean, was that uh, incredibly there, obvious to them? I think this might be one of the first times I've ever mentioned it publicly ever. But like, uh, so dad, if you're listening, uh, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I are you going to, you could at least buy him a, another bottle of Pepto-Bismol or something, right? And I do. Ship it I to do. Them. I, dad, I owe you some Pepto. <laughs> um, yeah, no. It, it, and that, and that's one of the things that is, uh, it, it, it makes the, talking about depression difficult because there are things where it's like um, you can you can you can have an attempt uh, at taking your own life and like that can be tied directly to an event like my my big one right out of college or at, at the tail end of college was that I called off a wedding with my then fiance uh, and was pretty devastated about the reasons why uh, but it did not tie into that it it was like a, a month or two later and i was actually sort of like you know what i think this was best for both of us and then everything just hit all at once so it, it's one of those things that like uh that that was the the moment that taught me that depression can be processed by most people if they can tie it to a singular event but if it is something that is just uh an almost chemical reaction or this like low low level running in the background computer file of like Hey, you should do this. And that just pops up every once in a while. That's the thing that no one knows how to handle. We can deal with cause and effect, but very few people can deal with like, wait, so like just that, that can be there. Like maybe you felt that way since you were in fourth grade, like 
well, that's wrong. Like, yes, I, I know that that's wrong, but, uh, and that's one of the problems with, with dealing with depression is that, you know, sometimes it, it uh, pops up out of nowhere and there aren't, there aren't symptoms for it. Right. Uh, <laughs> and there may be no, no reason at all. Right. I mean, oh, exactly. My, my first bout of major depression, there was a clear reason I was promoted into a high stress position. I had a five year old, a three year old and two newborns at home. So it made a lot of sense that I was way overwhelmed and went into uh, a depression. My second one, I, I don't I still to this day don't really know why it happened. And you hear about those stories where people are making fine money. They're uh, living in a you know, middle-class fine home that they're happy with, happily married, great job, and fall into a major depression. And sometimes it's those times when it's even easier to beat yourself up and make it even worse because you realize, what the hell am I sad about? Right. <laughs> yeah, the, that's always the worst thing. And I, 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 my, uh, my, my big attempt came uh, after my grandfather, uh, who was my best friend, uh, had survived like his fifth or sixth major heart attack where he almost certainly was going to die and just kept coming back. And like, I had to deal with coming home and trying to explain to him why I 60 years, his junior, uh, didn't think that I could handle this anymore, but he just kept coming back for more and he'd lived through such a more difficult life and multiple wars and all this stuff. And I've never felt, worse in my entire life than trying to be like, well, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I felt bad. Uh, and, and he's, uh, meanwhile fighting for life right. into his eighties, uh, every minute of every day. And I was like, okay. So like, I, I see that there is not a direct comparison here and, uh, I do feel bad about it. Right. Right. So what was elementary and middle school like? Were you dealing with depression continually that whole time, do you think? And, and were you able to be successful in school and get to school? Uh, I, I mean, I got, I got to school, everything. It, it sounds like you and I might have some, some similar uh, things with the, uh, hey, uh, do you uh, find value in constantly overworking yourself? Because uh, I guess that's been my entire life in many ways, like uh, – you find value in, in, in taking on more than you can possibly handle. And I, I think that that was all of my childhood and most of my adulthood and definitely the way I live today too. Like, uh, so just trying to manage that. <laughs> uh -huh. And did you have symptoms that you can recall specific symptoms going through elementary school, middle school, high school? Um, I, I was very late stage diagnosed with uh, sort of ADHD. I, it took until like the middle of college to get there, but like, the symptoms of that have always been there. And then uh, it took another uh, decade uh, post-college uh, for uh, doctors to figure out that I, I was sort of a rapid cycling bipolar uh, two, And that only came like two or three years ago. And uh, boy, that answered a lot of questions for me about uh, a lot of the things that happened in my 20s that uh, people told me that I did. And I responded with that never happened. Uh, turns out it did, and they were probably right about that. And I just, uh, don't have the memory to recall it. So yeah, there's a, <laughs> are you talking about, uh, some serious things or just like things you said or like how extreme did oh. that get? Oh, that, that got pretty bad. There's a, there's a whole stretch of my life where, um, people would just disappear and I, I wouldn't understand why we suddenly weren't best friends. It was like, I don't know what that is. Uh, and then, uh, one night a friend, uh, called my wife 
uh, who was my then girlfriend, was like, hey, I need to tell you that uh, yesterday, like, Brock broke into my apartment uh, and ranted at me for like an hour about a treasure map uh, that doesn't exist. And I wasn't drunk or on drugs or anything. And I don't remember the thing having happened. Uh, and that was the moment that we were like, oh, I need to speak to a doctor because something's been happening. And, and then in retrospect, it was like, oh, there are all these relationships that just sort of disappeared for me over the years. And it's less because less because of my actions, but more because no one ever felt like telling me that the actions had occurred. Like if, if one person in any of that time had told me like, hey, you did this, I would have been like, oh, all right, we should look into that. And finally, I had a friend willing to do that. But instead, most people were like, you know what? Don't know what that was. Didn't like it. Uh, we'll just, uh, we just won't speak anymore. So there is, and there's nothing worse than uh, getting a diagnosis that helps explain away uh, wildly erratic behavior. And, and that was probably my last great uh, bout of depression was, uh, oh, God, I, I did these things and I lost all these friendships uh, and no one is going to forgive me. And of course, no one did. Like I, I started trying and, and people were just like, you know what, there's nothing for us to rescue here. And I was like, okay, like I wish I'd known six years ago uh, about this because um, I would have fixed it then. So then you just got to sort of sit with the depression of both having knowing that you're at fault for having done these things, but also knowing that like, it wasn't your fault either. Right. And uh, there's no real way to reconcile the two. Have you thought much about why it is that people aren't even willing to discuss what was going on or don't give you the time of day or, or try to repair it with you or allow you to repair? I mean, both the, both the comedy world and uh, Los Angeles are just such large spaces that like, if you don't make a deliberate effort to see somebody you really don't have to see them again. Like uh, the person that whose apartment I broke into, we hung out a little more after that, but like we didn't talk, we have, we've not really talked since. And she lived in my building with me. Like we shared an elevator. Like it seems almost impossible that like in such close quarters, you wouldn't see somebody. And yet we did not. Uh, So I don't know. There's, there's sometimes that you can opt out. And honestly, I don't blame anybody because uh, boy, do we all have so much going on uh, that taking on the responsibility of trying to fix somebody uh, is not something that needs to be on the plate. No one needs to be uh, the girlfriend that that's, has the shitty boyfriend and is like, you know what? He's shitty, but I think I'm the one that can fix him. Uh, we, <laughs> we all already have enough of those people in our lives. So if, if I'm one less thing on some of those people's plates, then I feel like we've, uh, we've broken even on that uh, relationship. <laughs> Ah, that just seems like such a pessimistic way to to reconcile it. Did uh, do you think that any of it could be the stigma and and they don't want to talk about it because they realize this this had to have been some type of mental breakdown or mental illness? Um, you know, there there's parts of that. I I feel like I was surrounded myself with people that were always very good with handling my, mental illness, and I, I don't think that the stigma thing plays in. I think the thing that that really plays in is that, um, you know, I spent a number of years as a touring stand-up comedian and as a guy in his 20s in Los Angeles, I, I made enough mistakes on my own that I'm aware of and enough <laughs> mistakes that were also based around, you know, substances and uh, just willingly being like, you know what, I don't, uh, 
I don't care and I just want to go have a good time all the time that upon like getting the diagnosis of things, I, I think that part of the not believing me that, that comes from it is that it is the version of me that they could have seen uh, on, on various substances or drunk uh, is probably indiscernible from the things that I did on bipolar uh, but, uh, at least the things that I did in a weird party situation, those are things that I tend to remember and like <laughs> tr- would try to work through with people. The sort of stuff that like, there is just no memory in my brain of it because a, a different person took the steering wheel. Uh, it's impossible for me to even know where to start. I, Cause I don't know, like, I don't know if no one tells me what happened, then I don't know what to apologize for. Right. Uh, and then you're just sort of stuck with like, I know that you don't like me, but I don't know why. And even bringing up the question would betray the fact that no one here was in. It's, it's one of those things that I think I've tried to, I, I've, I've made all the reach outs that I think are important to reach out. And at the very least, I, I, I think in most cases there aren't a lot of hard feelings. At least we're just like, okay, well, it's still the end of this friendship. Like it's done. It's like that's fine. I just wanted you to know that, you know, I know, but also I don't know. So that's an right, interesting right. thing. I was like, and by the way, I'm just going to carry the weird sadness bag on this one for a long time and work through it myself. So you've you've handed over that responsibility to me. I hope that you are now free of it and go have a cool life and maybe forget the the thing that we did. So <laughs> Right, right. So you mentioned it was just a few years back that you were diagnosed with bipolar 2. Right. And how about earlier prior to that had you ever had a diagnosis and did you were you ever getting treated? Uh not really. I I, I there was always a sense that something was wrong. And I I got really good really quick at always trying to um, tackle that head on. Like there was never for me any sort of stigma. There was stigma for me growing up about like going to a therapist. I grew up in a small Kansas town. And even when I brought up around like grade school, middle school, that I felt like I needed to talk to somebody about this, what we had was we didn't have therapists. We had the minister from my church. Right. Uh, who like if I was trying to explain what was very clearly like ADHD obsessive compulsive disorder like textbook stuff he was like well you should pray about that I was like well you know had an actual like professional person ever spoken to me about these things we could have fixed a lot about what's wrong with Brock Wilbur two decades ago uh, and so there is there is some resentment about that and and it it actually uh, it trickles upward in a way where there's there's members of my family, including a my my grandfather recently passed away, and he's somebody that I'm positive uh, was bipolar, uh, and you know, at 84 he wasn't going to go talk to a therapist, but like a decade ago I think he could have if I'd pushed him on it a little bit, or if at any point in his life he'd ever taken his mental health seriously, which. If he had done so, then I would have known about it decades earlier, and the rest of my family would have known had a better say. It's sort of like how everyone in like in in small towns and in the Midwest, like no one goes to the doctor, uh, and then you find out like, oh, everyone on my side of the family has always had like a lung problem and a thyroid problem, 
they just never got it checked out. And so I made it, made it in my thirties without knowing that I had these things. Uh, it, it is, it is the exact same thing as any other medical condition. And when I tried to explain it to my family, I was like, well, you know how you need to, you know, change the oil in your car, uh, <laughs> and check the mileage. Like some of you need to do that with, with your brains. Right. And like, I, I think that if you just let somebody look under the hood a little bit, you'd, you'd be shocked by it, which my father, God bless him. Uh, I was pushing him on this enough that, uh, he finally agreed to talk to somebody, and because there was no one around our city, uh, my sister and I signed him up for one of those online therapists. Nice. Uh, to talk to, uh, and I was like, "Cool." So, like, and that was that. Those programs are, were designed for people like that who live in parts of the country, which is most of the country that doesn't have access to good psychological care. Uh, but like week two or three, that therapist said, "Well, I don't know what." Uh, what you're upset about. So like, thanks. And like gave, gave him like a gold star and said, you're all good. Oh my like, goodness. That yeah, like, sounds a little odd. Yeah. I was like, that's not how <laughs> therapy works. Like, yeah, it's right. just... I have heard some good things about some of the online uh, therapists, but that certainly does not seem like a very good experience. Right. I told my therapist and she was like, I don't know. Was he talking to like a bot somewhere? Was he just talking to Amazon? I was like, it's possible. Like he was, I was like, there's, there, I would like, I would like everyone in my family and absolutely everyone in the world should be in therapy and talking to somebody about their feelings. So I don't know. The quest continues to find somebody worthwhile. (laughs) So far we haven't been on the air that long and you've already mentioned about three different suicide attempts. So were you living with several suicide attempts that you had had even prior to ever seeing a doctor and getting a diagnosis? Yes. And and earlier I felt like you made it sound like, you know, you just dealt with some of these symptoms and stuff and almost like nothing really stood out, but a suicide attempt or several suicide attempts should kind of be a little uh, knock on the door saying, woohoo, something's up here. I, I mean, I think it ties back into that thing that I mentioned that like people find it very easy to process tying something to an event instead of tying something to a more long-term thing. So, so you'd have I an have, excuse. I have these things happen and then everyone involved is just like, well, it's definitely because of that thing and certainly isn't a recurring problem that we'll ever see again. And then, and then it is, uh, and you're like, okay, well we keep winding up in this spot. Maybe, maybe there's something else. <laughs> so I think, and maybe you know this or maybe you even disagree, but even if there is a logical reason, it's not really a logical um, action to then try to attempt suicide, right? I mean, we many people get very sad. Many people go through the grieving process. Many people go through divorce, challenging, super difficult divorces, get very, very sad. It doesn't mean, well, that was my excuse. That was my reason, right? And it seems like finally sure. you kind of came to terms with that and said enough is enough. Although it's interesting, it's not the suicide attempts that got you to go to a doctor finally. It was some dude saying, or some woman who said, you know you broke into my apartment? And that's what made you go to the doctor. That is pretty interesting to me. Look, if you if you have it in you to uh, spend an hour talking to somebody about a treasure map that doesn't exist, <laughs> that's, uh, 
you know, people have various wake up calls. You, you have your DUI and you realize you should stop drinking and you have your treasure map and realize that maybe <laughs> the chemicals in your brain are not balanced the way that they're supposed to be and that you should uh, take a look at that. <laughs> right. Right. How, uh, do you know how many times you've had, uh, uh, you've attempted suicide? Um, I, the, the actual attempt number is, is very low, but the amount of, uh, real estate that it takes up in my brain, uh, is shockingly high. I, I think the biggest progress that I've made in, in my adult life, uh, has come in the last couple of years, uh, especially with my very patient wife, uh, and the amount of time that I've sunk into working on myself. And, and of course also like finally having both proper medication and a proper diagnosis for it. But the, uh, the, the breakthrough I've had is the ability to just say, uh, say to her and, and, and sometimes people around me like, Hey, uh, I'm in that spot. <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, the, the thought keeps a swirl in there. Right. Uh, there's some form of self harm that I should be doing. And it, more and more, it is at least tied to sad things happening. My, mine, mine, mine takes two forms. Uh, I, I get, uh, my, my, my textbook depression comes when very bad things have happened or when very good things have happened. I'm very bad at spiraling. Uh, anything in the middle, like I'm always very okay. But like if, uh, if I get a job promotion in the same day as I find out that like I've won a ticket to go on a cruise, you can't let me in a restroom with a razor blade that day. Like that's just how it works. Like I, I have, I have a, a very certain set of limits and outside of that, everything goes out of control because on a, on a day that feels unnaturally good like everything has has gone right the the idea swirls that either it's going to get taken away from me or i'll never have a day this good again uh or yeah i certainly didn't deserve this and something has gone wrong and, and somebody is going to hate me for it and uh and those those things are are somewhat new for me but it's a, a equally difficult to break and i'm like okay so that's that's the form that this is going to take for me. And that's, that's interesting. <laughs> well, and I mean, you kind of named it yourself, but it makes a lot of sense that the most uh, growth towards living a mentally fit life have been in the past few years. Since you have a diagnosis, you have a, an understanding of what's happening to you now and you are working at it with a psychiatrist and it sounds and talk therapy to you're receiving. Right. Yeah. So, so you're putting a lot of effort into it, right? Which is awesome. It's really awesome. I'm curious too. Did you talk much to your doctor? Or do you know much about the difference between bipolar one and bipolar two? Because what you've described sounds pretty much delusional, right? And and you don't even really remember uh, it. And to me, that sounds like it could be a. Uh, and I'm not a doctor by any stretch of the imagination, but from from what I've heard and learned, it seems more like bipolar one when when a, a mania becomes delusional and so forth. Yeah, the uh, the issue for me was that uh, for years I, I was I was doing that sort of WebMD thing where I was like, uh, this it seems like I'm bipolar, and and I'd talk with doctors, and they were like, well, you're not because uh, you're not meeting so many of these criteria. And then I had one guy that had a very sort of doctor house energy about him where he would jump into a room and be like, aha, I've solved it. And I was like, okay, what do you got? He was like, well, you've got uh, rapid cycling bipolar, uh, which means that like I, the manic period, the bipolar one sort of thing, 
uh, that can kick in for just like a day or sometimes an hour. It's never like I'm on the couch for two weeks and then uh, awake all, all day for two weeks. There's no real rhythm or rhyme to it, but everything is still there in its place. So, gotcha. so it's, it's possible for me to, to do it so fast and that's why no one could ever diagnose it. I was like, okay, so like that's why I can just have like a, a, a two-day weekend where uh, it feels like God is telling me that I need to die and then the rest of the month, I'm just this normal guy that goes about everything. And I'm like, what's wrong with those two days? Right. And so is rapid cycling, I have heard the term, is that actually a part of the diagnosis? Yes, that's the, the it is, it is a separate, it is separate from bipolar one and bipolar two. It, okay. It's its own little class of thing, but it is, it is more in the bipolar two family. It's basically just like all, all the, all the parts of bipolar two are real, but, uh, you throw out a couple of the rules. Right. Uh, it is, it, it like, it shares like a, it shares like a border with a diagnosis in borderline, uh, okay. which is what feels the same too. So if I was borderline two or three days out of the month and then just a normal chill bipolar the rest of the time, that's, that's sort of what it is. So right. it's, it's nice to have your own little form of mental illness that you're like, this one's mine. I don't know anyone else with it. And I get to uh, learn it on my own. <laughs> That's awesome. That's funny. So <laughs> would you say now that you've been medicated, you're not having these cycles any longer? Oh, no, there's they're still there. But uh, the the rest of it is fine. Like, I, I think that the uh, I, I at least have I have a distance on it where I can be like, hey, I see this thing starting. and I can let my wife know, like, hey, if I start to get weird use one of our many signals to tell me that it's time for me to leave this party. Um, right. Yeah. I, I have enough distance to not live inside of it in the way that I used to where, and I think, I think that that's why the suicide ideations have mostly stopped. Like a, a lot of it has really had the volume turned down on it because when I'm in the worst of it, I no longer believe that like, this is the end of the world and I am here and this is all that exists. Mostly I'm like, Oh, I can feel it running around my body and like the, the, the physiological reactions of it. And I can feel the panic attack and the fear and, and even some of the ideas, but I, I'm all just standing a little outside of it going, I know what this is. This isn't like a, a new thing. This isn't a surprise. I, I, I see you. I see you bipolar. I've got you right where I want you and I know what's going on. So yeah, at least in that in that case, like the the best thing for me is so much of the depression and guilt from those years that I didn't know what was going on was the friendships I lost and and the the things that I might have done. And so now I know, like, hey, if if I have uh, plans for movie nights with a friend and this starts kicking in, then I'm just uh, not leaving the house. Gonna lock myself in here with a video game, right, and, or Netflix, and just uh, be be safe not only for myself, but for the people I care about. Uh, it's a very like werewolf situation where you're like, Oh, check out that full moon. I just shouldn't hang out at the, at the kegger tonight. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> so if I go out in the field with all the teenagers, the teenagers are going to die. It sounds like, uh, like for you, the kind of telltale sign that, uh Oh, something's coming my way is the thought processes. Or is there any physical sensations in your body? Do you notice any changes? Uh, I mean, nothing that's different from your normal, like, 
heart racing, panic attacky type stuff. Uh, yeah. But you, that yeah. is part of the symptoms that you feel you can tell your heart's racing. Yeah. Anything that, that, you know, you'd find in, in depression and almost anyone else or in, in panic attacks, like it's all there. Like it's, it's, I, I don't feel like my, my condition is special. It just feels like I've got the grab bag of other people's stuff too, which I, I think makes me a bit of a every man traveler in the depression world is like run into most people. And if, if we start talking about our things, I can be like, you know what? I got some of that too. And is uh, the worst part is this thing. And they're like, yeah, that's the worst part for me too. And I'm like, all right, cool. Like we have uh, that to bond about like a uh, real, real chameleon of sadness. Uh, so it's awesome that you have your wife as a part of your support team and somebody who can is also there. Like you made it pretty clear that if she notices something, she'll say, Hey Brock, like something's going on here and give you the heads up too, just in case it slipped by you. Right. And, and, and that's what it, like there, there was a period where it was like, Hey, is this, I am sure for her, it was like, is this worth being in? And, Thank God she decided that I'm I'm worth all this. But then there was a period that followed that where it was like, we have to develop a series of signals or our own little language here. And and some of that even became just like not just like when to leave a party, but just around the house where it was like, hey, I need a way of telling you that the energy coming off of you is fucking weird. And, I, right. and that I've seen it enough times to know where it's going to go and just for us to be able to be like, Hey, you know, you need to sleep in the guest room tonight, or I need to be able to like go take an hour or two to myself. And for you to not uh, be like, "Hey, why are you doing this? Are you mad at me? What can I do?" <laughs> like, it's like, so we were in a place now where when it, when it's there, she's like, "I've I'm gonna go watch a movie elsewhere," and I'm like, "That is cool, and thank you for letting me know that it feels like this, and uh, everything stays good, and it." It rarely has to happen anymore, but it's it's nice to have this own relationship language, which, I mean, it's not any different than the language I've seen with other friends with, you know, social anxiety or where one person in the relationship drinks a lot more than the other person. Like, you know, you, f you find your own little codes and our little codes have to be different than other people's, but right. uh, we found that's nice. <laughs> Can you give us a sense, like, is this happening every month where your spouse has to kind of clue you in or you have to clue her in or how frequently are these types of situations coming up still even under the medication and treatment there, there's no uh there's no regular period there's no the it, it's not like uh figuring out when my period is uh it is which which it used to be sort of our joke was like when it was monthly i was like okay well like you know you get to be emotional once a month and i get to be uh, erratic once a month too. And we, that cancels out. Um, yeah, it, it, I, I can go months at a time and, and it doesn't come up and then it can come up a bunch And it. Usually at least there is sort of this, there is, there is a sort of a visible ramp up that my wife sees at this point where she can, t she can usually tell like on Tuesday, if on Thursday, it's going to be a weird time. And, and she'll tell me Tuesday, like, Hey, you know, do you notice this happening? And on Wednesday, it's like, I need you to notice this happening. And on Thursday, it's like, we can't go to that movie with our friends tonight because you, you have to see this is happening. And I, I've gotten a lot better. It used to take until Thursday to figure things out. And now when she's doing a Tuesday, I'm like, 
okay, I will start paying attention to that and maybe we should cancel our Thursday plans. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so she's, helpful she's to have. She's very right about me and she, she gets me in a way that I am unable to get myself. So it's, uh, she's very canary in the coal mine from yeah. my emotional state. What I'm an, like, okay, what well, an you awesome, see it, then I trust you. <laughs> what an awesome support to have in your life. Exactly. And then I'm guessing there is no such thing, but I'm wondering if you've ever wondered if there's something that might be triggering it, and I don't know even what that would be, whether it be a, a type of food or a certain emotion that you went through mm -hmm. that week or something that kind of triggers a possible episode. I, uh, I, I used to do a lot of uh, diary work and trying to track, like, yeah, diet and, like, things that happened that day and to figure out if something kickstarted it or, or what have you. And there's just not a thing. It's just uh, going to be something that lives in me and, and I get a little better at managing it all the time. So, you know, you put the work in, you try to figure it out. Um, there's, there's no, like uh, there's no magic solution here. I'm not going to find, I'm not going to figure out that it's like, Oh, cheeseburgers. It was cheeseburgers all along. Every time I have a cheeseburger, I trigger a bipolar episode. It'll just be, uh, it's, it's something that we've all made peace with the fact that it'll live in me and, uh, yeah. we just get a little better at it all the time. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So I have to ask you, uh, you know, I, you may have mentioned this to me previously, uh, prior to the interview, but I, I know I also saw it on the internet as a political reporter, you were one who broke the story of Nexium, which is a, a pretty well-known story. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah. Uh, wound up uh, in a job interview uh, for a journalism gig, and uh, everything about it felt weird. And a couple of months later, me and some friends had really cracked the case that the company that was uh, interviewing me was a front for a sex cult. Uh, so we, we started, I, I, I wrote a piece in Paste Magazine that really started public interest in that. And uh, now, a couple of years later, the people behind it are in jail. And in the interim, uh, it was just a lot of me interviewing people that were in the group or were getting out of the group or had a family member in there. So it was setting aside a couple hours every week to just do uh, either face-to-face -face interviews or phone interviews with people walking me through the absolute worst things that had ever happened to them, which uh, for somebody that suffers from depression, uh, you know, individually, that's, it's a pretty hard gig to, uh, to wind up with, especially when you weren't going out looking for it. Uh, but, uh, there was also a, a lot of sense of, uh, you know, <laughs> some level of, uh, putting some good back into the world by helping to, to bring down some really awful piece of shit people, uh, that, uh, that made it very rewarding. My goodness. So it was actually somebody associated with them that hired you to work as a journalist. Yeah, they were trying to do that, which is just, uh, the, the dumbest goddamn idea to be like well we are a secret awful organization what if we uh tried to bring in some journalists um what were you supposed yeah, to it, were I, you supposed to be writing about the good things that their company was doing is that the idea ostensibly they were making a, a a news arm that was supposed to identify fake news in the world and i think it was a preemptive move so that uh you know when people started figuring out who they were and writing about them that we could call it fake news. Uh, and it was just like, Oh, 
that's the the worst idea I've ever heard. So, so then you ended up <laughs> essentially being a, a double agent of a sort. Well, I, I basically I, I I didn't take the job, but then I wound up speaking to enough other people that did, and we we traced the money to what this organization was, which was obviously a front with employees that didn't exist. So it it was just a whole house of cards that you, you I I didn't mean to stumble on the house of cards, but when the first card fell on me, I was like, look at all these other cards. Uh, and, and are you known at like? in the journalism field as somebody who helped break that story? And did you think that was going to advance your journalistic career? Uh, I, I, I am known for that. And, uh, I, I think that anyone that knows me for that also knows, uh, just how surprised I was uh, to be the person there. Uh, I, uh, was not really an investigative journalist and then it became a few years of my life. Uh, and that's, uh, just a, a really fascinating thing that can happen to somebody where you're suddenly like, oh, so I guess that's what I'm doing for the next couple of years is is really digging into uh, these monsters uh, and figuring out uh, what you can do to to help stop them. So, and were you know, yeah. just working freelance on your own at that time? Uh, I, I was working. Uh, I was working freelance when I came upon the piece and was sort of like, hey, we should definitely tell people about this. And then, uh, after that, uh, started talking to people and interviewing and there were a couple of different forms that a project around that was supposed to take, uh, which, uh, I'm, I'm almost thankful that, uh, it didn't because at the end of the day, uh, we got the people at the top and they're in jail and, you know, what's done is done and everyone's sort of free here. So, everything that I wanted to do has been done. So it's nice to have that under the, and then all, all, all done with. <laughs> then were you, were you then highly recruited by large news organizations to <laughs> journalist for them? No, uh, not really, but, uh, that, that's okay. There's always plenty of things for me to do. So, <laughs> and are you, do you continue the work of a journalist as well? A lot of writing. Oh yeah. I constantly writing, uh, constantly, uh, making new stuff and always talking to really interesting and fascinating people. So, uh, having a pretty wonderful life. And, uh, when, whenever I get down, it's, it's easy to look at, uh, all the people I interact with and all the stories I get to help tell and, uh, be reminded that I'm, I'm a pretty okay guy doing pretty okay things on, on behalf of really okay people. So oh, absolutely. that's me. <laughs> uh, and you have a, you've authored a couple of books, haven't you? I've got a couple of books. They're nothing that worth talking about. They're all just little funny shenanigan things. <laughs> all right, all right. And your comedy work? You've been on uh, some pretty big shows. Uh, yeah, I've done a couple of nationwide tours. I've got a couple of albums out. Uh, I've I've really enjoyed my work in the comedy world, and it is much like my work in the journalism world. I just uh, just really love people's stories, and uh, honestly, even even the darkest story. Uh, in comedy or journalism really winds up uh, reminding you about how lucky you are to have the life that you are. And uh, I think I found a, a new set of hope through that. Yeah, that's awesome. I also uh, wanted to ask you about, I saw essentially a short series of videos titled Ready, Set, Art that were pretty damn funny. <laughs> Tell us about Ready, what? Set, Art. I'm glad you enjoyed that. I used to have a <laughs> podcast where beforehand we just showed somebody a piece of art and we filmed ourselves uh, 
trying to talk about what it was we were seeing. And then we never showed anybody what the art was. Uh, I, I love that you've turned up one of my dumbest all-time ideas. <laughs> and and yeah. highlight it on the podcast here for you. <laughs> that's, a, that's exactly where this should end, is reminding people <laughs> that uh, the dumbest things that you'll ever do will always be on the internet, and sometimes it'll make somebody laugh. <laughs> well, I had, uh, I had some enjoyment out of it myself. I, I thought it was pretty damn funny. And as for, you know, you've mentioned about a good, a lot of the good work you're doing and your talk around stigma of mental illness and so forth. You also had the opportunity to work uh, with Jason Kander, correct? Yes. And Jason is a politician uh, who ended up dropping out of a race, correct? He, he is. Uh, he was, uh, had a very, very easy path uh, to, uh, to the highest uh, levels of, uh, of power uh, as a very young guy. Uh, and he dropped out of the race for Casey Mayer, even though that was a thing that was almost assured to him. He uh, had PTSD uh, from the war that he had not yet treated uh, from Afghanistan. And uh, he put out a notice saying, look, you know what? Uh, I have a lot of depression. I have, uh, I have some suicidal ideations. And I, I know that I could win this uh, and then do sort of my dream job. Um I'm not, I'm not going to run this time because I just need to stop for the sake of my wife and kid and go, uh, get shit taken care of. Uh, and, uh, I was, I was working for him at the time and sort of thought that working for him was going to be the thing I was doing for the next few years and, uh, found out he was doing this. And I've, I've never once, uh, been more proud of somebody I'm working for. I was like, all right. So that guy is not only showing that men, men that, uh, they can be, open and honest with their feelings, especially about very complicated subjects, but especially vets, uh, and, uh, that they can seek treatment and that everyone can, you know, be honest about when there are things inside of them that are, uh, are not going away anytime soon. And, and that it's okay to sometimes just, uh, take a break from your responsibilities and go make sure that you're going to function as a person and be alive and be happy. Uh, and, uh, he did that about a year ago and watching him, and his family these days is is so much different. He used to be pretty, you know, flying all over the country. He got to see his his five year old kid like once per month, uh, and it was very clearly unhappy. And now he's a stay at home dad uh, who grew his beard out, and every once in a while asks me if uh, if he should get into stand up comedy. And uh, the guy that once used to you know say yes to everything all day every day is now the guy that's like you know what. I don't want to do that today. I think I'm going to stay on the couch and watch Star Wars. And I'm like, this is this is great. I've never seen a healthier human being than somebody taking a year off to just be like, you know what? I uh, I got to do this for my brain, and then I'll go uh, go back to being a, a very important uh, dude again soon. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. What, like you said, yeah. what a fantastic role model to be really open about it. Right. And to share yeah. that so many people I think would just step down, unfortunately, and just say, you know, I have personal things, family stuff going on and I'm stepping down. But to, to say I'm taking on this PTSD, this depression, and you know, maybe I'll come back when I'm healthy. Well, I think the, the, the more common thing is that the person just wouldn't step down at all 
especially if they've got a sure thing of a of a political like race in front of them they're just you know True. i'm going to be governor it, like why would i not just do that and they'll like i'll deal with this afterwards and right. it's like right but then maybe you get into office and then you have a complete fucking breakdown and yeah. you're like okay well that's not good for the people i represent and that's not being honest to myself either so it's it, more than just him, it was just a, a thing that, you know, you, you make that choice on behalf of everyone that you would have represented. Like, hey, I, I know that we would have had a mostly good time with me running the show here. But um, if I did, who knows what could have happened? And I don't it's it's not your problem to fix me either. So Right. Right. Do you uh, anticipate him ever getting back into politics? Uh, he's already back uh, in terms of he's running a uh, an organization that is building tiny homes for homeless veterans. Uh, they were in the KC area and they're expanding nationwide right now. So he's he's already doing things that are uh, political adjacent, which right now seems like the much more effective version of doing politics in this country. Uh, he's he's out there building homes for people. He's out there making real change in the world. Uh, whereas if he was stuck in you know, a state house somewhere, you know, trying to figure out how to make a vote, uh, make a bill so centrist that it can pass and then nothing ever happens. That would be a, an incredible, incredible waste of his talent, uh, and, and his, uh, just who Jason Kander is. So, right. uh, he's, he's out there and doing things again and it's, it's great to see. Oh, that's fantastic. So, can you share with everybody where our listeners can go to get more information about you? And I think they can, uh, you've got a beautiful website. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm at Brock Wilbur, uh, on all social media, Twitter, Instagram stuff. Uh, I'm brockwilbur.com for a website. I just became the editor of Kansas city's alt magazine, the pitch. Oh, congratulations. Uh, so, uh, Thank you. So uh, really changing up the way that we do things there, uh, trying to do a lot more, uh, a mix of really investigative journalism, but also uh, really incredible people stories and doing some of the same work, making sure to normalize mental health, making sure to uh, su- support underprivileged communities, making sure to, you know, focus on the city I live in and make it a, a better place for all of us. So that's that's my jam right now. Man, and, uh, that is and thank really you for having cool. me on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that is that sounds like incredible work that you're doing. That's fantastic. And uh, Brock, before we wrap up, I would just love to hear if you have any kind of suggestion or piece of advice for somebody who's going through a challenging time themselves right now, a listener who might be in the midst of struggling currently. Oh, um, I uh, you know I, I find that a, a painfully honest. Uh, pro con list uh is often pretty helpful i've had friends before that have been uh really really in in the like this is my last night on earth thing and i i i know that a lot of them have trusted me to talk to because i would never sugarcoat things i'm like okay well let's let's jam like uh what are the pros and cons on this and even if you're you're being wildly unfair and you're out of your head from where you should normally be sitting down to do the pro con list of staying alive versus not staying alive almost always leaves you with a list uh where you're like okay so the stuff in the in the not being alive column that's uh 
it's pretty obviously all bullshit. Like uh, even even here in my darkest moment, I can see that that just looks dumb when you have it written down on paper. So everything from suicide on on up to you know just the casual day to day depression. Sometimes just just seeing it written down uh, will help you to be like, oh hey, there's that little bit of perspective I needed uh, to be like, you know what, that's a that's a that's a dumb feeling in my head and not a thing that actually exists. <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much. So, listeners, check it out, BrockWilbur.com. Brock, I want to thank you first of all for the work you do. I love the fact that you are using various platforms in your life to advocate and to help uh, chip away at the stigma. I just, uh, I really respect that. So thank you for the work you do and thank you for uh, taking the time to let me interview you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Make sure you stay healthy. All right. Will do. Thank you for listening to the depression files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.